Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, I speak with Richard Christensen from the home and garden brand Flamingo Estate in LA. We discuss the new book from his imprint, Flamingo Editions. Also on the show, Tom Hodgkinson, founder of The Idler magazine. He also has a new book out, An Idler's Manual. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show on a good note. From his beautiful estate in LA, I spoke with Richard Christensen, founder of Flamingo Estate, a beautiful home and garden brand from products of his beautiful home grounds. And of course, there's a print connection there. He also just published a new book on his imprint Flamingo Editions. It's called Fridays from the Garden, featuring stunning recipes. Richard tells me more about his brand and the book. Well, you know, I moved there about five years ago. It was um, it's seven acres in the middle of Los Angeles. It's this very rare property that was falling apart. It was just almost abandoned. Uh, and I started renovating it, we fixed the garden, and really this incredible little gem that no one had remembered since the 40s. But the interesting part of it is not that. The interesting part is I had been working to restore the garden, I'd met a lot of growers, a lot of farmers. And the very first week of COVID, someone I knew said that she was going to lose her farm because she grew vegetables for restaurants and all the restaurants were closed. And so what happened was uh, I said, bring your vegetables and we'll sell them. And I think she thought we could sell a dozen boxes. We sold 300 boxes that first week. Then we sold 600 the next week. Today, a year and a half later, we have 35 trucks. We've delivered to 55,000 homes. And what's interesting is that um, one farmer grew into a second and a third and a 10th. Now we have 75 farms that provide for us. And those people came and said, hey, I've got olives, what can we make? And I'd say olive oil. And then, hey, I've got herbs, what can we make? I said soap. And so we've grown into you know a couple of hundred products from these regenerative farms. and. Um, and all because of a farm box during COVID. So it's been, it's been a really wild, beautiful adventure the last year and a half. And you mentioned the success of it and how we helped uh, the farmers as well. And to be honest, there is an interest from the public, I guess, from the food, because, you know, they know where it's coming from. There's a beautiful idea from the brand. And I think it's very much what people want these days as well from a brand, especially, you know, when it comes for a wellness brand, or I don't know how you define uh, your brand. Well, you know, I think that if COVID didn't teach us anything, it was that we have to prioritize pleasure, that we have to double down on the things that made us all feel alive. And that means better sleep, less anxiety, better sex, um, all those like human essentials. And those things can be delivered to you from the food you eat and from the products you use in your bathroom and the, the things you use in the shower. And so what we found as we started really to understand plant medicine a bit more and all this amazing stuff that people are growing is um, how we can use all that stuff really just to deliver pleasure for people. And, and you know, you think in five years time in Los Angeles, at least when psilocybin is legal, when we can say, okay, from magic mushrooms, you can have a once a day capsule to feel less anxiety. You know, that sort of stuff is super interesting to me, how we can pivot really just to like prioritize pleasure. The other thing that is interesting about what you said we're doing nothing new here. This is not innovation. We are not Apple. We actually are doing the oldest thing in the world. You know, we're just growing vegetables. 
what we are doing though is sort of, return, I hope, returning people to center, prioritize nutrition and sleep and sex and euphoria and all those, those human emotions. Was it a big change from your, your previous life, which I think I read an interview with you that you said, you know, you were flying everywhere. It was a much kind of perhaps more chaotic or I, I don't know how to describe. Was it a big change for you at Focus Now yeah. in that brand? I mean, I think you probably understand what it, the changes like many people listening, I think, do. I, I own a creative agency, an advertising agency with three offices, uh, with, you know, 100 staff. And I was so out of alignment. I had done nothing in 20 years but travel and chase after clients. And I hit COVID exhausted and mentally wrecked and tired, you know. And so in many ways, the forced stopping of that behavior was a blessing. It would never have happened if COVID hadn't happened. And, you know, I think the other thing about the brand that's interesting is that my agency fell apart during COVID. We lost almost all of our clients in the beginning. All of our clients were fashion and retail clients and they stopped spending money. And so I had these amazingly talented people with not a lot to do. And so I was like, okay, I know you just want to work on Hermes, but now you're in charge of stone fruit and you're in charge of mushrooms and you're in charge of oranges. And I think because of that, people on the, the team um, who I, I love um, took that eye that they had for branding and for luxury goods and for fashion and they put it into the garden and so I think if you know nothing about the backstory if you know nothing about the farmers that we work with if you know nothing about the the trees we plant and the environmental work we do what you would maybe know is that the, the brand looks really nice and I think that's simply because we've uh, we've taken that lens and put it elsewhere and also like what a dream to take the thing you love the most for me the garden and make it your life it's been amazing so I've had I've had a beautiful, beautiful 18 months. That's fantastic. And, and not only you have beautiful produce as well, but you also have an imprint, which I find it uh, fantastic. Tell us a bit more about the imprint, and then we're going we're gonna to discuss your latest release, uh, Fridays from the Garden, which is amazing. I, I, I had a pleasure to have a look at it. It's interesting. The book started because every week we would we would write recipes to go in our vegetable boxes on Fridays. When the trucks went out, we would send thousands and thousands and thousands of boxes out and we would, we would put recipes in there so people knew what to cook from the farms that week. And of course, the chefs in Los Angeles were also out of work, the restaurants were closed. So many great chefs came in and said, let me do your recipes, let me give you some stuff. So within a year and a half, we had, we had gathered thousands of recipes. And so without even thinking, we had enough for a really nice book. So the, the Fridays from the Garden is my first cookbook. It's a combination of the 150 of my favorite recipes from the last year and a half. Uh, and also a little bit of the story of, you know, how my home became a brand and how the brand has now become a, you know, family of 75 different farms. Um, so I'm really proud. The, the other interesting thing is I want Flamingo to become, it will become, you know, a place of inspiration and education about the green world. And so in addition to the cookbook, this Christmas, we're launching seven new books from my heroes, from my uh, luminaries who I love. So Jane Goodall, the environmentalist, and Michael Pollan, who uh, wrote that amazing book on magic mushrooms, How to Change Your Mind. Um, Robin Wall Kilmer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, an amazing book by Terry Tempest Williams called Erosion, which is about the erosion of morals and also the environment and Trump and all that sort of stuff. And the Farmer's Almanac, which is um, sort of a farmer's guide. So the first of many, and, you know, I think in many ways, maybe like everything we've been doing this last year and a half, a little bit bucking the way things are done. You know, I'd gone to the big publishing houses, I'd done the presentations to them, and I 
came out with that feedback and thought, you know, I don't need a bunch of old white guys telling me what my book should be like. I have the distribution, but we have more than enough, you know, pipeline to get books to people. We don't need to give them half our money to do nothing. So we changed the way we thought about it. We just said, we're just gonna, we're gonna create our own publishing house and we will become that resource for the green world. So I'm super excited about it. And so far, so far, I mean, the book hasn't even hit, hit yet. And uh, it's been doing very, all of them have been doing very, very well. So um, I'm happy that people are reading again and I'm happy that we can you know, have a place in people's homes. It feels very special because I guess, you know, most of the ingredients, I mean, you, you can have it like nearby. I mean, I was looking at some of them, like Moroccan semolina pancakes, actually, they look pretty delicious, I have to say. And, and even the names, the psychedelic, I mean, we're talking about mushrooms, that psychedelic radicchio with coated mm -hmm. mustard seed dressing. Oh. A, a beautiful photography as well, I have to say. I mean, yeah, again, we just... Uh... That was my agency background, you know, we had all the, all my, uh, you know, my friends were photographers also out of work during COVID. So I said, come over to the garden. You know, I have a funny, if I can indulge you, I have a funny story about that. Please. You know, no one knew how to do this in the beginning. And, you know, the barmen were out of work in the local bars. So they came to help pack boxes on the, you know, all of our friends who chefs were cooking it and photographers are coming over. So everyone just sort of pitched in and did something new. What happened a year ago, this, this time a year ago, we were so backed up. It was our first Christmas. We just could not fill enough boxes with Christmas presents. And I wanted every box to be beautifully wrapped in a ribbon. And we just couldn't get these like dudes to wrap the ribbons properly. And, and someone on the team came up and said, um, hey, Richard, I know, I know that if you want someone to wrap a ribbon, the restaurants aren't the only things that have closed in Los Angeles. The dungeons have closed. There's a lot of like dominatrix who are out of work. So if you want someone to tie a rope or tie a ribbon, uh, bring them along. So we got this team of very interesting characters. I joke that many of them have never seen sunlight, but oh my God, they could tie a ribbon and tie a bow in about three seconds flat and it looked better than Tiffany's. So we just found lots of interesting characters. This big family of people who would never have found each other got together and made this happen. Well, thank you for that amazing quote about the dominatrix. That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, is, is a magazine in the cards? I mean, because you have beautiful produce, you have now an imprint. I, I can see it. I mean, I can see it too. It would be lovely. We do a big catalog. We do a sort of an 80 page catalog, which is beautiful twice a year. People love it. Um, I mean, much like you, I know much like Monocle, much like, you know, everyone that works on your team, I love print, I love magazines. So thank you, if you're gonna do it, you need to do it beautifully. It needs to be something that people cherish. There isn't enough, I feel like in the gardening space, both on television and on in print, you know, it's old ladies gardening or it's David Attenborough talking about the world ending, but there's not a lot in the middle. And I think there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of co-creation. You need to think about raspberries being grown for, for sex tonics, you think about mushrooms being grown for anxiety. There's a lot of really interesting work being done that's beautiful, that's interesting. And that is, you know, I think Mother Na I've said Mother Nature's our doctor, therapist and friend. I also think nature is the greatest luxury good. And so, yes to that. We've been working on a TV show, see how that goes. So we're, we're, we're working on some different stuff. And finally, on the business side of things, I'm curious, are the people that buy mainly kind of people in Los Angeles or do you also do international deliveries? I mean, in terms of expansion, what are you thinking? I'm quite curious about that. It's quite well, a beautiful place. So I'm sure that you have a lot of requests of people wanting to visit, right? Both, yes. We, we daily have requests. We don't let people visit. It's my home still. 
it's a place for us to work and grow. So we, we're very, we, we, we're very private uh, at home, but we, uh, but it is lovely. And as an expansion pot, we're doing really well, um, very well this year domestically. Next year, we will launch into Australia. It's interesting, there's a brand they call Mecca. They're, I think, one of the best retailers in the world, sort of like Sephora here, I think much better. Uh, we launched in 150 of their stores in Bath and Body and Candles and things like that. And so that's a nice test run. It's really, obviously, I'm originally from Australia, even though I, you know, lived in London for bits before I moved here. So I'm very excited to get back down under. And, um, you know, let's see. I think uh, I'd be very curious about where we end up in London and in Europe. And I think that's on the cards for next year. That was Richard Christensen from Flamingo Estate. Do check it out, flamingoestate.com. And finally on the show, a pleasure to welcome in our studio Tom Hodgkinson from the great title Idler, which he launched back in 1993. Hodgkinson is also the author of many books, including How to Be Idle and How to Be Free, and his new book is called An Idler's Manual, self-described as the perfect user's guide for life in this post-lockdown world. He tells me more about the book and of the success of Idler magazine. It's really, it was an idea for subscribers originally. So um, The Idler is a magazine, like Monocle is a magazine. We, we have our readers and our subscribers. It's it's a club, it's a community. We share similar interests and values, you know, and, uh, and, and the magazine and the website brings them all together. But we thought it'd be nice for, for new subscribers to have a, a kind of like an introductory guide to idling, if you like. We, we often come across people who say, well, you know, I, I get it. I'd like to be an idler, you know, what's my next step? What do I sort of do about it? So the idea is this is a slightly tongue-in-cheek, but a, a sort of practical guide uh, to, to doing nothing for people who are not really used to it but would like to do more nothing. And I need to actually explain to some people, because especially in this world where people love talking about mindfulness and all this kind of stuff... It's not quite that, right? I think we should differentiate a little bit. I think people that know the brand know that, but, you know, let's It's not quite that. It's not quite well-being. I mean, the idea is a strange idea. Uh, it's, you know, it's quite... We're not party political, but it's quite politically radical in that we, you know, we started from a position of thinking there were some really bad jobs out there. You know, people, people really get stuck in boring, boring jobs that they hate, which they're only doing for the money. Can we explore an alternative universe where you, you know, you work less at the things that you don't want to do and you work more at the things that you do want to do, uh, the things that you choose, the voluntary stuff. So, so yeah, it's it's about, really, it's about a sort of philosophical approach to life. How, how can I live the best life? How can I live well? But, you know, I, I, I do slightly depart company with, part company with the mindfulness thing. And I'll, I'll try to explain this, I'll try to explain why. It's because I think that, you know, on the surface of it, what's wrong with with you know staring into space or closing your eyes and doing nothing for ten minutes? How can this guy be sort of anti mindfulness? Because I think it's been a bit co opted by uh, large companies to kind of do their well being. So they say, oh, you know, your staff are depressed and you know uh, this place is badly managed. Oh, but we gave them a mindfulness app, you know, and. Um, so I think mindfulness can kind of be co-opted by the, in a way, the thing that the idler is against, which is big corporations, big bureaucracies, big power structures and so on. It can be co-opted by those big companies as a, a, a means of sort of keeping the workers happy and keeping them almost kind of subdued. I mean, 
Aldous Huxley said, you know, in the future, we'll have these happiness projects, which is a, a way of... Uh, sorry, this has got a bit too sort of heavy and political already, hasn't it? But, That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, but, you know, we'll have these... Uh, you know, he predicted, some, you know, happiness projects. And he said that that's another way of um, encouraging people to sort of love their servitude, you know. So the island's a bit more radical than that. But I mean, I'm not certainly not against meditation. And I, I grew, actually grew up meditating. My, my, my dad meditates. The, the other thing I found about mindfulness is that they've taken the idea of meditation, which is a, you know, it's a spiritual practice. It's to do with connecting with your inner being and your soul. And even the possibility of a sort of... Uh, you know, uh, an immaterial world out there or something called God, you know. I mean, that's what it's really about uh, in all traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism. So my other objection slightly to mindfulness is that, you know, it's taking a practice, a centuries-old, millennial-old practice, which is designed to remove you, you know, from, um, if you like, the workaday world and connect to, to another world which might be sort of deeper or more real in some ways or more meaningful. Uh, it's taken the God thing out and it's turned meditation into a sort of you know, tool for capitalist production. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I, lo I love those insights, actually, uh, Tom. But another thing I was going to say about the book, that it's kind of, it's perfect for the time we're living today, this post-lockdown world, if, if, if I may say. Because you're right, I think you mentioned, a lot of people are changing jobs. There's been lots of change in, in people's lives in the way they perceive their lives. Not only their work, but I think in other areas of their life. So I think, I mean, but that's what you've been doing with the Idler since 1993. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 30 years. Yeah, it's amazing. We, we, we started with this idea, and it, it's not a new idea. It's almost like, you know, the Romantic Poets probably said something similar. It's it's in hippie movement, it's in the punk movement, you know, I, I don't want a boring job. You know, it's sort of bohemianism, really, if you like. But yeah, <laughs> a friend of mine actually emailed me during the pandemic and said, you know, this tiny invisible virus has done more for idling than, than you've achieved in your 25 years of hard work. Because it was quite amazing, really, wasn't it? That, you know, governments were suddenly telling everybody to stop working. Normally governments are the most fervent promoters of the work ethic, you know, hardworking families. You know, you've got to work hard to look after your family, scrape the ice off the windscreen at six in the morning and so on and so forth. And now they were saying, don't work, stay at home, do nothing. <laughs> and at first I think government thought, you know, people, when you bring this up with, let's say, Tories, the, the Tories will say, well, well, it's all very well telling people to do nothing. What will they do with all this time? They'll just muck around and drink beer and watch television and, uh, you know. So there's this rather patronising idea that if people had more leisure, what would they do with it? You know, this problem of all the time. But actually, under lockdowns, you know, a lot of people were on furlough. They were staying at home. They didn't really have much work to do. Were they bored? Did they riot? No. They became creative. They did up their houses. They got into the garden. They... You know, played music. Um, they spent more time with their family. These are all things that we've been promoting forever. You know, so I think yeah, the um, the pandemic did open up the eyes of some people, at least. You know, I know obviously there was you know a lot of people died, nearly two million people. So that's not funny. But you know, sometimes out of a bad thing can come a good thing. And to me, yeah, I hope anyway that it's opened up people's eyes to the fact that you know there is more to life than just working really hard for your boss. You know. And, uh, yeah, that can be part of your life, but don't let it take over your whole life. And when you do have more time and leisure, actually, when people are left alone, and this is a sort of anarchist thing, really, you know, um, they're very good at organising things. You know, we don't need so much authority in our lives. We don't suddenly start looting and, you know, killing and shooting if we're left to our own devices. And, in fact, people, 
you know, your, your creativity comes out. And people were very, you know, I hear it again and again. People were very, and it, it was sort of made, idling, it was idling made easy because you were sort of allowed to. So, you know, one of the problems I think with idling that people say to us is, well, I'd like to, but I feel guilty. But in this case, it was sort of, you know, state-sanctioned idling. But I think that's given people a taste for it. You know, and people, I don't want to go back to that old life where I was spending two hours a day commuting and uh, doing work that I, I found sort of fairly meaningless and, you know, stressful and I was taking too much time out of my life. And, in fact, some, you know, bigger businesses have are changing the way they're doing things. So quite a nice idea, kind of thing that we might have proposed years ago through someone like Charles Handy, the management guru, who writes about these sorts of matters. You know, two, three days at home, two days in the office. The office is a sort of a, a kind of a club, you know, because it, it is nice to work with other people and get out of the house and you have ideas and you can eat together and change your routine a little bit, but also you can work more efficiently at home. And that's another thing actually is, you know, idling is quite closely related to efficiency. And I wanted to be an idler because I didn't, I felt that um, when I had full-time jobs, a lot of my time was sort of wasted. I was sort of sitting there not really doing anything, whereas I actually enjoyed the work. And But if you work for yourself, then you can do sort of three or four hours a day. I mean, you know, I'm talking about, obviously, I'm not talking about lorry drivers, although even in that case, you know, we could definitely argue for a six-hour day or a four-day week, you know. So this does apply to all jobs, actually. But creative jobs, yeah, it's not really about the time you put in. It's about the end product. So it might take you only... I mean, how long did it take... Um, Noel Gallagher to write Wonderwall, you know, 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Some of the best tracks are actually. Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of job I'd yeah, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, 10 minutes work for a kind of a lifetime income. It's pretty good. But one thing that is very important, I think, for you and, and for the book is all, to make a sandwich, actually. It's quite, it's quite important. It's quite, it can be quite. Uh, therapeutic. I think. I think that's a that's a lovely, lovely one. I think that's one of my favorite chapters. Oh, I would well, thanks say. Thanks for noticing that one. Yeah, no, that's um, a really special <laughs> one because I don't know. Sometimes you you don't even think. But but tell tell us a bit more about what, what what's up with the sandwiches. Well, well, well I, I remember in, in you know in my twenties, I never thought about making a sandwich to take into the office, and we were out all the time. We went to we were uh, in the canteen or would go out for lunch, and then later in life, you know, I had children, and we had to learn to be a bit more sort of frugal, and. I realised that I could really save a lot of money uh, cycling to the office, making a sandwich in the morning and not buying coffees during the day and um, preferably not, not going out for... Well, when I work for big companies, you would tend to end up going out for drinks with colleagues and you <laughs> that may not be the way you'd choose to spend your time and money. But anyway, so, so you, you would sort of cut that out. Um, and this is actually quite a sort of big saving... So at first I started making a cheese sandwich each day to take into the office, kind of for frugality reasons. I didn't want to spend five pounds, you know, five times five is 25. You know, it starts adding up. It's like, hang on, I do this for a year. I could, I could buy a bespoke suit, yeah. you know. Um, I could buy a tailor-made suit for 800 quid. So these little savings, are, but also it's quite creative, you know. And um, I mentioned, I think, in the book, I like it in Breaking Bad where uh, however much money he's earning... Walter still makes his little, his sandwich, you know, each day. It's like his moment of control, and uh, he cut, I think he cuts the crust off, and it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> 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 and it's you know, and and then I thought about the sandwich. It's it's a really 
you're completely free when you make your own sandwich. So, you know, you don't have to rely on the uh, choice that's offered by um, Sainsbury's or Pret-a-Manger. You can put whatever you want in it. Oh, my God, I agree so much. Because <laughs> I love, for example, salami and honey. I mean, I can't find really? it. I love it. I mean, That's uh, a great idea. And if I go to Pret-a-Manger, they don't have they that. They don't have you that. Know? <laughs> so I can make it on my own, right? <laughs> you make your own. Yeah, what's, your, what's your, actually, sandwich Well, like your mine's really boring, but... um. In general, it's a just cheddar with pickle or cheddar with some salad on very nice. This is classic. You know, but you can, you can get everything the best. So we've got the best sourdough bread that we get from Riverford. Really, really good cheese, you know, and uh, and the butter's good. A bit of black pepper, you know, um, sometimes a bit of rocket. So you can have, you know, something of really pretty good quality. And it costs like nothing, you know. Um, but sometimes I would, <laughs> for a special treat, I might put Parma ham in. Lovely. I'm hungry already. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I mean, let's move on now to, the, to, to your magazine, uh, The Idler. How is it going? I was reading, I mean, it's almost 30 years since you've been doing it. Uh, so so t tell us about the latest. How much did it change? Uh, I mean, clearly you still have a very much a loyal kind of readership as well. Yeah, well, it's gone through all sorts of different phases. I mean, um, you know, it's hard work keeping a, a small magazine going. We were quite lucky in the 90s because The Guardian helped us quite a lot, you know, for two or three years. Um, we then went to another company uh, in the noughties. We cut it down to two a year. And then we went down to one a year, <laughs> which was not too onerous. And then zero. So uh, my partner, Victoria, and I were somewhat distracted by opening a, a cafe and event venue in London, which we ran for five years. And that was really took up a lot of time. In the fifth year of that, I didn't produce a single magazine. So it had virtually vanished. But then five years ago, we thought, look, no, let's, you know, I'm not a shopkeeper. Let, let, we'll, we'll close the shop and we'll get back into the magazine. We'll restart it. And so we had quite a good mailing list. So we started again. This time round, we're doing it properly. You know, we're looking at the business side properly. We've got investors. We're employing people to help us with the marketing and stuff like that. So, you know, I think a lot of creative people have this problem that you put all your work into the creative thing that you do, but you don't put enough work into the, the selling of it and the business side. I've written about this before and, you know, I've definitely made this mistake. And you sort of think that you'll just make something good and it'll just sort of take off without you putting any effort at all into the marketing or the selling. You know, that really doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's very, very rare. As I'm sure the publishers of Monocle, you know, know, you know, you need to put a lot of work into the getting it visible, getting it out there. And in our case, selling subscriptions. And so that's the model is really we have some on the newsstand a few are in Smiths and Waitrose and things. But really, we decided to concentrate very much on our subscribers. And that's good because it's a, it's like a sort of a gang and a club. And that's that's gone well. And, and in fact, under um, lockdown, the subscription rates increased quite dramatically. We lost, you know, virtually all newsstand sales. I mean, they went from, you know, just under a thousand to about 50 or something. And also, we lost all our advertising. Our advertising is not our main source of income, but we have mm. some advertising. So it's all about the subscriptions. And actually, they, they went up by, I mean, during the 12 months of lockdown, they went up by 70 or 80%, you know. They, they've levelled off in the last couple of months. But So that was, again, quite good for us, actually. Um, when people were talking about conspiracy theories and, you know, who do these lockdowns suit? I was like, actually, it has suited the idler quite well, you know. I'm not saying I had to a... To blame, I'm joking. Yeah, I'm not saying I had a quiet word with, uh, with uh, Bill Gates and you know, some pharmaceutical companies in order to encourage a pandemic. But it has, it has, you know, it's been good for us, actually. 
Thank you, Tom, and check out idler.co.uk for more info on his magazine and book. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Max Store with Flamingos. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.